last hour that we were talking here about you know our love for the truth on the one hand the apostles doctrine has got to be connected with this this kind of honesty about our life and us and who we are and and admitting to faults doesn't weaken your ministry uh, as a matter of fact in in private prayer your confession of of need and fault and I wish I could tell you that I, I in, in my life I, I I've never found a place that I've had little plateaus where everything seemed pretty exotic for a while <laughs> but then things would just go right back to chaos and I've lived most of my life in chaos and problems and um, I I have to tell you I don't have a clue what I'm doing half the time I really I know you think I'm just saying that to be facetious but I I'm I pardon the candidness of this but I fly by the seat of my pants most of the time I don't have a clue and I don't I, I'm not very comfortable you know these people with the little day timers and they got the lives all planned I don't understand that stuff because uh, I've never known I was always been like God help me I don't know where I'm at I'm, I'm lost all the time in that kind of storm and, and I, I don't know uh, I don't know that that's right if you can but I just think if you plan your life too much you're under planet I mean, you don't know where God wants to take you so I think you got to wake up every morning and say this is where I am this is what I'm struggling with right now this is who I'm meeting today I'm pausing here because I want you to think about when you meet somebody don't ever take it lightly because the person you meet today either in the church or outside the church could be the person 20 years from now that will change your life so don't ever take never take a day lightly always always be focused on what you what you are and, and then you know you can look at other people and you can think uh, they, they must never have any problems or any troubles and that's not true everybody's like in this great fight and what I fight most of the time is like right now I, I'm going through this like I get about 15 minutes into a sermon and I totally forget about what I'm preaching I'm like just so I lose confidence in the sermon that's a horrible, horrible, nightmarish thing. And I really cannot hear myself preach. I just, I, I, I'm trying to, it's like a wall. And I can feel so confident I can have it totally worked out, but I just get up and I get, I use it. Uh, and I fight that. It's like, uh, it's, it's, I'm in front of an audience of some kind 700 times a year, counting my daily radio broadcasts, the school, the funerals, the church, and special things last year 725 presentations of some kind that I made in front of an audience and uh, so sometimes uh, I get burned out I, I don't like to use the word burned out but I just get I, it isn't burnout it isn't that because I feel high energy I feel I can I can build sermons and get thoughts but I lose confidence about 15 minutes in it, have you ever felt that uh, and it's a very terrible thing to get through so that's one of the battles that I fight and everybody fights battles and uh, the devil does never give up I have a son presently who's out of the church it's a very difficult thing to deal with I have a very nice family my one daughter's married to Tim Pettigo my other daughter's married to brother Rodenbush Rob Rodenbush he's a preacher attorney very successful son-in-laws but I have a son that I just cannot get stabilized in the church he'll do good for a while he has a little business power wash business but baptized all of his kids his, uh, his older kids all received the Holy Ghost but I cannot get this kid stabilized he's almost 40 years old now 
We get along well. We've always gotten along well. It's a great mystery to me. Now, sometimes um, it doesn't bother me. And then other times, like lately, I would say in the last year, I have to literally, when I, I usually go to the platform via the, uh, the uh, prayer room. I walk through the prayer room because they have to come in the back way. They designed the church really poorly. You have to almost walk a couple miles to get up on the platform. And so when, every time I'm making that walk, this little voice says to me, you know, how can you go out there and preach to those people? And it's a tremendous privilege to preach to those wonderful folks at Calvary. I love them very much. But the enemy fight it puts that on me. How can you go out there and preach when you know you should you can't even get your own son in the church, keep him in the church? And uh, I have to shake. It's like a demon. You have to shake it off. You have to resist it. And so you see, every preacher has his private battles. These give you two of mine. Now, if you had the constitution, I could whine like this the rest of the day because I've got lots of problems. You understand? But you have to arise, awaken every morning, and you have to put your faith in God because God is working things out that you don't know, that you don't understand. That's why I've learned, for me personally, I don't have no big plan for my life. I'm trying to do the best I can. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have a business plan or you shouldn't have an evangelism plan. I'm not talking about just ineptness here or laziness. But I don't think you should be so worried about posturing yourself all the time and making sure you've got your life lined up and you know you go crazy doing that put your faith in God and the next thing you know you can be you can be up against it and there can be a turnaround one person you can win to the Lord that will revolutionize your church the worst the worst day of my life when I first started pastoring up in Muskegon Michigan we were struggling I was working my wife we couldn't pay our bills we were living in a little apartment above a, a television uh, a television shop and the guy had it it was totally wired with when I when I rented it, it had televisions everywhere I didn't even know it and the guy I had to explain the guy I said you got to get the TVs out of here he said I and it comes with the apartment and I, said, I, I was above a television place downstairs and, I, and so I we lived in this really tacky place and didn't even have a bathroom the only thing we had was a big TV the only thing, the only only thing worth having in the apartment was this huge television. I had to get the man to take it out, and he didn't understand. He was furious because he had to take this thing out. And so we're fighting that, and I had to send my wife to a little laundry down the street, a little laundry to work. She said, "I'm going to go down there and get a job." And of course, it was embarrassing. Your wife working in a laundry, you know, and doing sheets. But she met Faye Edwards. And Faye Edwards uh, came to church with my wife and got the Holy Ghost. And Faye was like a like an Oklahoma tornado. First her mama, then her sisters, then her brothers, then this, then that. And we had Brother James, uh, Brother Robinson, Brother David Robinson was there in that revival. Sixteen got the Holy Ghost one night. Seven got the Holy Ghost the next night. Thirteen got the Holy Ghost on the weekend. All from Faye Edwards all from that lowest point that we had ever reached as a couple. When I had my wife working in laundry, I was so embarrassed. So you just can't plan that. How do you plan that? How You, you don't say, well, honey, I want you to go down to the laundry. You're going to meet Faye Edwards there, and she's going to get the Holy Ghost, and we're going to have a revival. Now, if you got your life planned like that, you are an amazing person. But all of that comes out of despair. 
and trouble. And so I think, be, be encouraged. God has his hand on you. He knows what you're going through. And even, you know, even if you reach the place that you dream about and you think, well, I'm going to get to this certain spot and then everything is going to be easy there, that is not going to be true. Because as soon as you get there, God says, you did well. You stretched. You made it. You, it really was a complicated trip, wasn't it? We're getting ready to take another one now. Because you did good on that. I'm going I'm to I'm shoot you into outer space one more time. And so here you go. You don't ever know where you're at. I'm the district superintendent of Indiana. I'm feeling pretty good about all of that. We've worked hard and done a lot of improvements in the camp and so forth. I'm driving down the road. And uh, it was, uh, I mean, the spirit moved in the car. I might just uh, wet my... Uh, wet my uh, tie with tears. I couldn't quit crying. I was sobbing. I was at the four-way stop. <gasps> I just couldn't drive. I was out of control. I never had a spirit move in on me like that. And as sure as I'm standing here, that that was it. It was as if God spoke to me. I went home that day, wrote my letter, resigned. First told my wife, see, and I don't, I don't understand none of that. I, but I just know what God said do that day. And I'm starting to feel real good about that because God knows exactly how to guide you. So I can't tell you, nobody can tell you exactly how it's going to all work out. Trust God in the trials and the tests and the tribulations. Can you forgive me for that? I just felt like saying that to somebody. He's going to make a way for you. He's got his hand on you. And you're, you're in the greatest business that there is. You know, to be a preacher, that's a wonderful thing. You get to be an educator, a writer. You can be a trainer of men and women. You can be an architect, a fundraiser, a psychologist, a, a preacher, a speaker, a radio man. You can do it all. I mean, this is a wonderful profession to be in. You're only limited by your energy, your talent, and finances. But, you know, hey, this is a great profession to be in. And Paul said, I magnify my ministry. Why don't you magnify it? Make it bigger. Get out and do something. You say, well, I've only got so many people in church. There's kids that are not going to church. Get them in. And say, well, I don't want to have a, a, a church full of kids. Why not? What's wrong with that? You know, your wife will appreciate it. Get off of her case and, you know, yell at those kids for a while. All right, we're going to talk now about Paul's ethical defense of his ministry. Now, I was reading the Bible and uh, believe it or not and uh, I came across this chapter and uh, I was uh, just noticed what Paul was doing here and I called Tim Pettigo in the office I said Tim I want you to read this chapter with me because look what the Apostle Paul is doing and we came up with this list because really what Paul is doing is he's making an ethical defense of his ministry or he better said that's not real good English he's making a defense of his ethical behavior in his ministry He's proving by recounting his history that he lived his ministry in purity of purpose and purity of heart. And he's saying, uh, as we know he said in another place, he's saying it here in a sense, I fought a good fight and I kept the faith. I think every one of us needs to get to the end of our journey. Whether you have a spectacular ministry or you just kind of have what other people might say is, uh, I don't believe there's any ordinary ministries, by the way. I think God has a purpose for everybody. But you just get, the main thing you want to do is get some place where wherever that place is when you look back and say I fought a good fight I did right I kept I you know people can follow me I didn't mess up I, I didn't ruin anybody's thoughts about God or the ministry so now let's take a look at Paul's ethical defense of his ministry and you'll have a little some blanks there that you can fill out we won't read the chapter we'll just go right to the lesson so let's go to slide number one and we'll get this first verse here Acts 29. Let's read it together. Serving the Lord with all humility of mind, 
with many tears and temptations which have befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. Now here's the greatest revolutionary preacher in the history of the world. He changed Western civilization. He's the most quoted individual still today, 2,000 uh, years, 1,800 years or so after his ministry. He's still one of the most quoted individuals in the world. If you're just looking at this in pure literature, there's been more written about his writings than any other man that ever walked on the face of the earth. But here he is reviewing his own ministry and he's saying, serving the Lord with all humility of mind, with many tears and temptations which have befell me by the lying in wait of the Jews. So here is his first defense of his ministry. If we can move ahead now. And you'll kind of keep me moving here. He is uh, really defending the fact that he uh, lived in spite of all of the great things that one might ascribe to him. He's nevertheless walked in humility of mind. And he's, he's saying with all humility of mind. Now this is a great challenge for all of us to whatever you accomplish, whatever you do, walk in humility of mind. Don't get lifted up in yourself. Whatever you accomplish, it will be by God's grace, God's ability. And most of us will build our ministry, especially those of us in this third and fourth generation Pentecostal world here. We're building our ministries on the lives of other people. You ought, to, you ought to think about that every day. I mean, you didn't invent this. If you want to figure out how big your ministry is, just get a big billboard out of here and tell them you're going to be in the convention hall next week and see how many people show up. I mean, you're probably not that big yet. And, you know, I always say to evangelists, you know, you go to a church and there's 300 people sitting out there. Remember, they didn't come to hear you preach. They came because the preacher, the pastor, called for a revival. They would have been there, if, uh, you know, regardless of who the preacher was. You know, that uh, none of us should take too much, uh, subscribe too much to ourselves. You know, if I'm blessed to get to come to Oklahoma camp meeting and that place is just packed with people, they're not there to hear me. It's Oklahoma camp, for heaven's sake. You can have Mickey Mouse and they'd all come. This doesn't matter. This is, uh, people don't come all together for the preaching. They come for the fellowship to be together. Some people get there and say, who's preaching this year? Are they having that fat slob back again? You know? People don't care. Remember, people don't hate you. They're just for themselves. Where am I going to stay? Is that right? Hope they got a phone in here somewhere. <laughs> Y'all still mad at me about that. Oh. Isn't, that, isn't that the way it is? So walk in humility of mind. You know, you... That's why I always like it when, when you're speaking somewhere. Ingratiate yourself. I'm glad to be here. It's a privilege to be here. Thank you for letting me come. It's like I'm here now. I'm, you know, three hours getting to speak to you. What a tremendous blessing that is. I don't deserve that. And yet, I'm humbled by just spending a day with you. It's a tremendous privilege. But you're not here because I'm here. You're here because it's a district thing. I'm privileged to speak to you. Bishop Golder, right before he died, we were at a big uh, city. We had a citywide like a prayer meeting with all the pastors. The PFW guys come. UPC guys come. And Bishop Golder says, he said, he, it was right before he died, he said, you know, they had him speak. And he had like a five-minute slot on the program. Bishop Golder, five minutes. He goes, well, I see you on the program. They've only given me five minutes. And I want to say, if you speak five minutes or five hours, it's always a privilege to speak. If you speak to five or five hundred, it's a privilege to speak. See, and I believe he lived his life by that principle. It's humility of mind. That's a great 
a thing I think Paul made. Let's go to the next one now. He talks about his modesty. Now he makes another defense of his uh, uh, ministry, and we go to the, I believe, the 20th verse. He said, uh, and now I, let's read together. And now I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly from house to house. Here the apostle makes another defense of his ministry. Let's see what that was. He's talking now about his ethical life. He said, I have been fair and I have kept my duty. I've been fair. Treated everybody fairly. I've kept nothing back that was profitable. I've showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've done my duty. I've been very fair with people. I haven't kept anything back. Nothing secret here. No, no, just an honest ministry. That's the kind of ministry you want to live. Just an open ministry. Amen. All right, let's go to verse 21. All of these things, I think, demand more time, but as you realize, we are a little pressed here. 21. Let's read. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he talking about here? He's saying, I have lived my ministry with what ethical behavior? Can you see it there? Here it comes on the screen. I have been none biased in the way that I presented the gospel. If all you want is an all-white church, you are a sorry preacher. You know, none biased. You shouldn't care. God saved the whole world. doesn't matter. If you're privileged, anybody in your church, you're privileged to pastor them. You're privileged to be in that pulpit, to be exercising godly authority over people's lives, building a church. It's a wonderful profession. You know, this is, I think I may have told you this story, but it bears repeating. There was a, a couple in um, uh, Texas that was going to take this trip down to uh, the southern tip of Argentina, and they took a year's sabbatical to do it. I may have told you this story. And they... Uh, got this uh, SUV and they put extra tires and he was a mechanic and she could speak several languages and they took off on this great wonderful adventure to drive all the way from Texas down to the tip of Argentina which by the way is a wonderful wonderful if you ever get to Argentina you've got to go there it's a great place and so they get into uh, Uruguay I believe it was in the mountains of Uruguay and the, the little SUV, the SUV that they had it wasn't little but the SUV broke down and it was twilight, and the guy was getting out. He's thinking, trying to figure out what it was. And he said, well, it's pretty, getting pretty dark. I'll just, we'll just camp here on this mountain, and we'll fix it in the morning. And while they were preparing to set up tent, uh, a farmer, a mountain farmer, and his wife saw them on the road, came down and talked to them, discovered that they were Americans, and invited them to their house for dinner. And so they thought, well, this would be wonderful. So they w went to the house of this uh, couple, that had never been off that mountain. And the man, of course, naturally, the woman could speak the language, so he was telling him, I've always wanted to meet an American. All my life, I've wanted to meet an American. And he kept saying that. He said, oh, I'm so glad. We have Americans in our home. Americans have always wanted to meet Americans. So they ate the little humble dinner there. And at the end of the meal, the man said, you know, I've always wanted to meet an American. And I'm so glad that I have an American in my house. And I have something I want to show you. Something I want to share with you. Something, a treasure, a wonderful treasure that I want to give you. And he said, I want you, or I want to talk to you about it. And I want you to tell me what this treasure, what this great thing, this treasure is worth. And of course, the, he had piqued the curiosity of this couple. And so they ate their dinner. And the man finally, he couldn't hold himself back. And he went back in the back room. And he came out. The man said, the Texas man said, with a, a little box said it was about the size of a cigar box 
and it was hand-carved, a beautiful hand-carved box. And he opened it up and it had a, a black cloth on the inside of it. It's a cotton cloth, a very beautiful, well-embroidered cloth that was down there. And, and the man said, I have this treasure in this box and I want you to tell me what this treasure is and what it's worth because I'm so excited. He said, you're an American, you can tell me what it's worth. And he opened up the box and inside on that black cloth was one American penny. And the man said something was so profound. I mean, it stuck in my brain like somebody had seared me with a hot iron. Here's what the man from Texas said. He said, I had the unfortunate task of telling the man that what he thought was a treasure was worthless. That's the job of the preacher, telling this world. You put your trust in pleasure. You put your trust in fame and fortune and all that. All of it is worthless. What does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his soul? That's our job. That's a big job. And we want to be able to do it with, with authority. And the only way you can do it with authority is to be a good person, an honest person, an interesting person. You know, it helps to be an interesting person. You know, if you want to be an interesting preacher, be an interesting person. Say, well, good to see you again, folks. I, this week I haven't done anything. I haven't been anywhere. haven't read anything. and haven't met anybody. and haven't been out of my city. <sighs> what did I preach about last week? Uh, I don't know. You're just kind of dull. You're just kind of boring. Couldn't you get involved somewhere? Couldn't you do something? You know, go somewhere? Hey, I just got back from Oklahoma. I was in the tornado last night. Chased it down. You know, you just try that one time. You, you know, it'll be interesting. Make your, there's all kinds of ways of making your life interesting. I was in Russia not just a, uh, in the fall, back in uh, November, with the uh, Turners and uh, the Rodenbushes doing a conference there. And uh, there was a, a group of people out on Red Square, and they were having this big protest, and they had signs, and they were singing Russian songs. And so I said to Brother Turner, I said, what are they doing? He said, well, that's a communist revolt. That's a communist uh, revolution there. They're trying to bring back communism. And I thought, well, how interesting. I grew up all my life hearing about the evils of communism. And it wasn't evil. A hundred million people were killed by communist governments since the turn of the century. And it's a wonderful book I recommend to you. Read the Black Book on Communism. The Black Book on Communism. That's the name of it. Uh, documents, a hundred million deaths. Unbelievable. Well, anyway, I thought, well, now this is a moment. Here I am on Red Square. I'm an American. Communism has fallen. Russia's going capitalistic. And here's a bunch of communists still having a rally. And I just broke loose from the group and went over and got in the rally. And I'm singing songs and I'm talking to the people. And, and so then finally a woman says, uh, she was leading the rally. She said, oh, we have an American, 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 American. And everybody starts going. And so she wanted to know if I was a communist. And I said, no, I'm a capitalist. And they're going, communism, communism. I'm going, capitalism, capitalism. And it was a moment which we all have uh, duly photographed, you know. <laughs> Now, see, there's all kinds of ways to make your life more interesting. Why would you want to live a boring life when life is exciting? And if you make your life more exciting, you'll be more interesting as a preacher. You'll have a story like this to tell to people like you when you're someplace like I am now in Oklahoma. But you have to make things happen. You know why your marriage is so dull? You're dull. 
You go home the same way. Why do you go home the same way every night? I don't get it. Just think how your wife would feel if you get in and say, Honey, we're going to go home to Mustang tonight. Going to go down to Mustang territory and have an ice cream down there to little Dairy Queen. Your wife would go, The man's crazy. But I guarantee you she'd like you a whole lot better. So there's ways. You know, if you go on a vacation, why not get a convertible? Why get a regular old car? Put the top down for heaven's sakes. Somebody said, we got to be conservative. Why? What's wrong with putting the top down? And if you really want to be more interesting, leave it down when it's raining. <laughs> My wife and I went on a three-day vacation with a convertible, and here was a rule. Top down regardless of the weather. It's a wonderful vacation. That means we drove in rain at 47 degrees. Can you imagine passing somebody on the expressway? 47 degrees outside, it's pouring down rain, you're going, hello! It was invigorating. But you know my wife loves me. She loves me. She thinks I'm a nutcase, man. Keep your life interesting. That's up to you. That's your responsibility. And it's not only your responsibility to keep your ministry interesting, it's your responsibility to keep your ministry clean and ethical. So when you get to the end, or you get to some place where things are measured, wherever that's at, you can say like the Apostle Paul, I was non-biased in my ministry. I never made a difference between a Jew and a Gentile. Do you know how big this is, this statement right here? You know how huge this statement is in the context of the culture of his day? Let's move quickly now. Two verses let's put together here. 22 and 21. And now behold, let's go. Let's say it together. Now behold, I go bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem, not knowing the things that shall befall me there, save that the Holy Ghost witness in every city, saying the bonds and afflictions will abide. So what is the ethic here that he is defending? Did it come up? Selfless commitment. I've made a commitment. I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to turn out. But I've made a commitment. I'm going to be a preacher, baby. I don't know where I'm going to end up, but I'm going to be a preacher. And wherever we go and whatever God calls us to do, we're going to give it 100%. It may be in Dallas or it may be in Dewar, but we're going to give it 100%. It may be in Africa or it may be in Alabama, but we're going to give it 100%. That's what Paul's saying. Verse 24 now, let's read this. But none of these things move me, neither count I my life dear unto myself so that I might finish my course with joy and ministry, which I have received of the Lord Jesus, to testify the gospel of grace of God. So what's he talking about here? What is the ethic? Can you think of it? You didn't think of it. It came up on the screen, a bunch of... Integrity. Everybody say integrity. People's going... Integrity, yeah. Of course. Wow. Integrity. Does that mean something? You better believe it means a lot. Just to live a life of integrity. I like to be around I don't like to be around dishonest people. I don't like to be around people that I don't even like to be around people who are dishonest spiritually. You know these people that are kind of in this kind of, you know, super spiritual mode all the time and I want to say, Would you just give me a break? All right, let's not go there, Brother Mooney. Okay, thank you very much. Um, where are we at? 33? Which one? 25 and 27, let's say. And now behold, I know that ye all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. 
Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you. So what are we talking about here? Accountability. Wow. There's people, now I'm not against being independent, but I don't think anybody should be truly, absolutely independent. There needs to be, you don't have to belong to UPC to be saved, we all know that. But the wonderful thing about our fellowship is it does have some accountability. And, and that just, you know, just if nothing else, there's accountability of friendship. You know, you just kind of know one another and you can look at one another. There's kind of those eyes of accountability, you know, and I know what you've been doing. You know, you better straighten up. And uh, all of that. And plus then there's the accountability of, the, of, of our officials and that sort of thing. We're a self-policed organization. That's a good thing. And, and we do a good job, really, if you stop and think about it in terms of moral failures. You know, there's not very, you couldn't find very many fail, moral failures in the United Pentecostal Church that have been swept under the carpet. Now, I know a couple, and, and there's there's sad examples of poor leadership, but for the most part, it doesn't matter who you are. We're, we're pretty straight across the board, and that's a pretty good thing. It's a good record, and we police our missionaries, we police uh, our people, and there have been a lot of tough, tough issues that we've had to face. But one of the things that people who look at our movement from the outside are really quite impressed by, this is true, they're really impressed by the accountability that apostolic preachers have with each other. And it's a very, very special thing. All right, let's read to the next verse here. 28 and 29, take heed. Come on, everybody. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after I am grievous wolves enter in among you and not sparing the flock. You can move me quickly now and let's just go to the next little ethical. He's giving here now something very powerful to the ministry and I chose to call this transference and training. Transference and training. In other words, he's not just milking the church down to its last little nub. He's taking time to prepare for the fact that he is going to go. And he says, when I go, probably grievous wolves will come in. But he's going to set the church in order. He's going to make sure that there is some training that's taken place and some transference that's taken place in the church. Of course, we know that apostolic secession was part of the New Testament tradition. And we need to be carrying that out in our own churches. I mean, if you're a pastor and you're 60-some years old, you need to be thinking about the fact that you're getting ready to die. That you're checking out sooner or later. I mean, you know, you may live to be 70, but your effectiveness is on the way down. The you know, generation gap is getting ever larger. And uh, you, your energy level is ebbing, 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 ebbing. And you you're don't even care as much as you used to care. And the call of the wild is upon your soul and heart. And the fishing lures are looking more and more enticing than they ever have before. And you just know too much to be effective. Your idealism has been flushed. You know that things are not as some people think they are. And, and you realize that even after years of working and struggling, you have made just diddly squat difference in the world, and you are tired. And you know when you start getting those feelings, it's time to transfer the old torch to somebody else and say, here, you know, let's... let's. So, but I think there needs to be... I'm being a bit facetious, and I don't... I believe ministers can be effective way up into their later years. But there still needs to be a responsible person somewhere at the helm that says... We need to be preparing for the future. All good companies are training people to take over the leadership of those companies. 
uh, and you need to be doing that in the church. Sometimes we get away with uh, uh, internal leadership. That's a wonderful thing. I think it's the best kind, personally. But sometimes we have to bring in leaders from outside. That can work, too. But you take over the leadership of those companies. Uh, and you need to be doing that in the church. Sometimes we get away with uh, uh, internal leadership. That's a wonderful thing. I think it's the best kind, personally. But sometimes we have to bring in leaders from outside. That can work, too. But you have to be working at this. And the apostle did it. All right, let's go to the next one. Let's read chapter 30, verse 30. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. How many know we still have this going on today? And there are always men uh, from among us. And what is the defense here? What is Paul talking about in this particular case? Facing the hard issues. Paul said, I face the hard issues. I'm facing the hard issues. And let's face it, we got people that we know and that are among us that are trying to pull people off. They want to make disciples unto themselves. They're more concerned about their own pocketbooks than they are the kingdom of God. They're more concerned about their reputations and being popular and big time. And they want people to suck up to them and say that they're great and wonderful. And there's men that will sacrifice a great deal to get the adulation of other men. Yes, they will, folks. As people give up an awful lot to have the praise of men. And there's many people that that means more to them than anything else. There's people with talents, musical talents. I appreciate people like Brother Tremble. He has great talent. He's been connected with the music industry, but he hasn't sold out. And you need to thank God. We have a good number of apostolic, some of the most talented people in the world that haven't sold out. They're not all here, but give them a great big hand and thank God for them. And they could. They can make a lot of money. And that's why you need to buy their records and support them and that sort of thing and help them because they've given themselves. All right, let's move ahead here now. We're making a defense of our ministry. Wherefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn every one day and night with tears. And this, of course, is another important thing that Paul is saying here. What's he saying on this case? What is it? seriousness of call. He says, I've worked day and night, man. I haven't played around. I haven't, I haven't horsed around with you people. I've been at this. If you have a call into the ministry, you ought to be a hard worker. You ought to be the hardest worker in your congregation. Preachers, some preachers are known to be lazy preachers. And no preacher should be ever thought of or referred to as a lazy preacher. They ought to say about you, he's the hardest working man I've ever been around. You get around that preacher, he'll work you into the grave. You ought to be, if you're going to call work meetings, you ought to be there. Prayer meetings, you ought to be there. Day and night, working and laboring. It takes a lot of energy to be effective pastor. You can't just put, there's no such thing as automatic pilot. So people say, I won't get my church on automatic pilot. There's no automatic pilot. You're going to have to stay involved and stay committed. Best prayer meetings are the ones that the preacher is at. The best revivals are the ones that the preacher attends. The best programs are the ones that the preacher has. If he's not directly doing it, at least he's overseeing it. He's got people that are accountable to him for it. All right, let's go to the next verse. Verse 32, let's read. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the words of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. And the defense here is the proper placement of honor and reverence. Can you do this? Can you say to the saints, folks, we wouldn't have a church if it hadn't been for you, and you're giving, you're sacrificing what you mean. It's not just about me, it's about you. Look what you've done. You can revolutionize your church just by giving compliments and praise where it belongs. And when you're so tied up in yourself and so into your own self-grandizement that you cannot praise the people that serve you and wait on you, 
And by the way, if your idea of using people is just have them park your car and carry your bags and to mow your grass and to help you with, on, uh, to help you with your cattle ranch, you, you're misusing people. Your power is to use people to get things done in the kingdom, not to get your grass mowed. And if somebody comes out to, to work on your place, you, you pay them. Somebody comes out to, you know, the labor is worthy of his hire. You know, now there are there exceptions. Well, of course, there are exceptions, and uh, you might be surprised what good help God will put in your life. Uh, we have a wonderful lady that's worked for us. I couldn't, I could not, we could not function without Jean Van Royalty. And Jean Van Royalty came into our life through a revival. She was living in a in a little a one two room apartment in a in a little rundown in a rundown part. It wasn't a little big rundown part of our city of Muskegon. Bus went by. We talked to her kids who were outside playing. She said, I want to come too. She came to church. She was uh, Christian Reformed. She was filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Her husband had beat her and had uh, raped a little girl next door. He was in prison. Just just a horrible life. Everything you could imagine. She got saved. Children were baptized. They grew up in the church. We had a little program in the church called Discover Your Gift. As every man has received the gift, even so let him minister the same one to another in Peter. Apostle Peter's writings and so we said discover your gift find out this was when we began that training program that was revolutionary in our life that was our key verse that we use helping people discover their gift and people were you know searching their hearts trying to figure out what they could do in the kingdom we were trying to unleash people and let them do things and a lot of it was chaos and people did a lot of dumb things but we had leaders that came out of that you know and didn't hurt us one day Sister Jean came to us and we I, at the time I was pastoring two churches I had a church in Muskegon and I had another church in Shelby Michigan which was about 40 miles north so I got out of church on Sunday drove all the way 40 miles preached in Sunday afternoon came back Sunday night and preached again it was a big day and Jean came to us and said I would like uh, I believe my gift is to cook we found out she didn't have a gift of cooking I had to teach her to cook I love to cook but she couldn't cook but I taught her. She's a good cook now. So at any rate, uh, she wanted to cook our lunch for us so that we could come straight home. So while I was preaching, uh, you may find this offensive, but while I was preaching in the main service, she would slip out after Sunday school and she would go over to our house. Dinner would be ready. We would then eat and go. It made our day. And Jean, that gift grew in Jean, and she's still with us all, after all these many years. I cannot remember the last time other than just wanting to go to the grocery store that I've ever been to the grocery store. She, she does all those things. We pay her, of course. She, uh, but we just couldn't live without her. She's a librarian. She works at our school. And uh, Brother uh, Babs Lionel's here. He knows Sister Jean. She's, uh, she's crazy, Sister Jean. She runs the school. If you'll let her, she'll run your life. She runs my life. I don't have a clue what's going on. But you see, that is a gift that God gives you. Now, you can't make people do that. That has to come through a process of just God rewarding you. When you give a lot, when you give a lot and you're pouring out a lot, God's going to pour a lot of stuff back into your life. But it's got to be sincere. It's got to be real. It's got to be real work. And so we need to give honor to people. Then if you're going to have people helping you, you've got to give honor to them. Sometimes that's all people want is just a thank you. I appreciate you. And I know that you know there are people who are very crass. They'll take your last energy. They'll take the last thing you've got. And, uh, you know, you know, when Brother Martin called me, this uh, Brother Martin's very charming, is he not? 
he's kind of got that boyish, little boyish way about him. But he's a, he's not a, you know, he's very tricky. So, you know, this is the day before Mother's Day. So Brother Martin says, you know what, you know, I, I had a little hesitation. Not that it was important. You could have gotten anybody, but just for me personally. But you know how Brother Martin convinced me to come here today? And he said, you know, I'd really like for you to do this. It would mean a lot to me. And when he said it would mean a lot to me, I'm oh, okay. <laughs> you understand? Now, that's an, a very effective leader. That's a very effective persuader. Now, what do you think? I, you, you know, what could Brother Martin now and I, in our personal relationship, you know all he has to say to me, which he's already said, thank you. But if he didn't say thank you, I'd be aggravated. I'd go home aggravated. I'd tell you, I'd go home aggravated. I would have slob didn't even say thank you. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying here? Now, this is plain teaching, right? But we have crass people sometimes that take and take and take and take and they never say thank you. Here's Paul saying, look, I'm giving honor to whom honor is due. There are people that have helped me and people that have labored with me. And you want to start revolutionizing your church? Start praising your people and thanking them. You should be doing it. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. And you will make people want to help you. Now, you're not saying thank you to manipulate people because that's flattery. All right. Let's move to the next one. I hope you think this is pretty good, and I'm just trying to give you a little something here. Acts chapter 20, verse 33, I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Woo! Is that powerful or what? All right, what is he defending there? His finances and stewardship. You want to look at the books? I've coveted no man's. I haven't taken anything that didn't belong to me. And, uh, you know, I don't try to own the church. This little thing, sometimes it gets among preachers about ownership. You don't own the church. Church is not yours. And, um, you know, you have to be very careful about this thing. It's not a family business. And people, when they sense that in you, that you're trying to build your own little empire, and you're trying to build your own little family operation, and the money's all about you, I have... I'm sorry to say this, but I have seen operations where everything in the church was running down. Now look at this church. They brought this, the, this carpet wasn't here when, the, uh, in 1991. This church was all run down because the Nazarenes knew they were going to move over to this new building over here. But the, look at the money that's been poured back in this church. When you start pouring money back into a church, you know what that makes people want to do? That makes people want to give. And it also is going to help you. Not that that should be your motivation, but your income probably will go up too. Because there's a sense of trust. If people feel that there's... Uh, uh, somebody said, well, you know, I've, I've had people at uh, Calvary that has been there when maybe we were taking up a special offering. And it's all relative, you understand, whether it's 10 people or, or 1,000 people. It's relative. So, But, you know, when you see uh, $100,000 come out, people say, well, how in the world? Because in the whole lifetime of Calvary Tabernacle, there's not been one preacher that's not been accountable in stewardship and finances. Not Brother Larson, not Brother Urshan. Not, you know, all these preachers have been very careful in the area of finances. It's wonderful to step into a church, Brother Whalen, where you've got just this tradition and history of tremendous honesty. Now, wouldn't it be a shame for me to go in there and start trying to rip things off and get everything into my pocket? Well, you, that wonderful fountain of giving would dry up because people, you, they want to see something coming back. And that is what the Apostle Paul is saying here. The finances. I haven't coveted your money. I haven't coveted your gold and your silver. 
think about that in your ministry. Keep this part of it clean. All right, we're moving on now. We're about done, and the, the roast is waiting for us. We are absolutely two minutes away from a brisket. 34, yay, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered. Oh, was that the last one? Yes. Well, you're going to let us read that. Can you go back? <laughs> you want that brisket right away. They didn't move it. You know, I've had problems with you today, Ruth Schweitzer. All right, let's read. Yea, ye yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. I didn't covet your money. All right, I've, I've done a lot of work myself, he's saying. And he says that the call of the ministry includes an example of sacrifice. This is more important than hardship. Sometimes people pride themselves on going through hardships, you know. And... But the example of being faithful, the example of sacrifice can pay tremendous dividends in your ministry. People see you knocking yourself out. They're going to get in there and help you. All right, now, folks, big work day tomorrow. Make sure you're here. Everybody be here. We're going to put up this wall. Yes, sir, be here on time. Now, I won't be able to be with you because my wife and I, you know, we've got a vacation scheduled down in the Bahamas. But get this wall up. I'll be back. Now, there might be a time when that's okay. You understand. But, you know, that can't be attitudinally. If you've got that added kind of attitude working, there has to be this sacrifice. And Paul said, you know, I got in here and I've worked with my own hands. We know he was a tent maker. He said, I didn't take your golden money. This must have paid tremendous dividends for the Apostle Paul. Now, I believe that those that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. All of those things are valid things. But when, when the situation calls for sacrifice, you better be in the front of the pack. Better be in the front of the pack. All right? You can't act... If you're going to be in, in business or something, maybe that's different. But a pastor, you're going to, you, when you accept a life of a pastor and preacher, you're accepting a life of modesty. Also in the way that you live. It's a, it's a commitment that you make to God. Now, I know that there's preachers that teach, a preacher, he ought to be the first millionaire in the church. And I understand all the, you know, blab it and grab it group and all of the positive, all these guys that are teaching people. But there are many, many, many people that are following those particular ministries and trying to do what those ministries teach, and they're not becoming millionaires. And so you got to, there's a balance. And I understand God blesses those that give and all of that. But I do believe that preachers themselves should be willing to make sacrifices. Is that okay? All right, verse 36. And when he had thus spoken, he knelt down and prayed with them all. We come to this very powerful verse, and this, I think, is something I'd like to put on the screen now he had a caring relationship how else could he have how else could he have done so well if he hadn't really cared for people and they cared for him they wept they cried you know when you when you resign the church and there's a big celebration you, you probably should think maybe I didn't do as well as I could have done you know I've only I've only pastored two churches and I'm happy to say that the first church that I left, it was a very tearful thing. I still, I get homesick for them. I still miss them. I miss my church. The people, I never, I, you know, I never used them. I never called them. I never, but I miss that. I miss that whole thing. There was a something very, very, I won most of those people to the Lord. There was something very close. And I, I never, I've never gotten over it. There's an empty place there in my heart for them. 
and that's been a long time ago now, but I still have it. I've, I've talked to other priests. You don't just get over that. I think there's an ethical responsibility when you leave a church, but that doesn't mean you're going to get over the pain of having had a re caring relationship with people all these many years. Let me end with this. I was getting ready to leave Muskegon, Michigan, and I decided to just drive down some streets. It's one of my favorite stories. You've heard me tell it before. Drive down some streets, and uh, it's interesting how you can live in a city for 22 years and there's so many places you've never seen before. And I was trying to just go to restaurants I hadn't been to and drive down streets I never had been. So I went down this one street and off to my left was the most beautiful flower garden that I had ever seen. And I was so stunned by it that I parked my car in the middle of the road and I walked out into the middle of this flower garden and it was like rows symmetrically put together, roses and all the different types of flowers and it was beautiful. I had a little rock. I mean, it was just impressive. About the size, maybe half of this church. Pretty good size thing. And I was standing there looking at it and a woman, an elderly woman, maybe in her 80s, stooped over, came out of the house and she started screaming at me, Get out of here! What are you doing looking at my flowers? Get out of here! Get out of here! And I was like, man, this woman is nuts. And I said, ma'am, I was just enjoying your flowers. This is the most wonderful thought I could charm her. You know, I said, this is the most wonderful flower garden I've ever seen. She said, yeah, yeah, you get out of here. Go home and grow your own flowers. That's a trouble, you young whippersnappers. You only want to look at somebody else's flowers. You lazy no thing. Go home and get your own flowers. No exaggeration. That's exactly what she was doing to me. And I'm just backing up, thinking, i got to get out of here, you know. So she, I kind of turned to walk away, and she was just yelling at me. And she, she saw that I was walking out of the driveway, and she said, Hey! Hey! Like that, real rough voice. And I turned back. She said, You really want to know how to grow flowers like this? And I said, I really would. She said, Come here. Come here. Come here. So I walk over there and she said, I'm going to tell you how to grow flowers like this. You listen close to what I'm going to tell you. I said, okay. She said, you go home and you get you some flowers and you plant those flowers. And you remember to always water the flowers and cut the weeds and don't ever get mixed up. And I carry this little black book with me all the time. And I got in the car and I thought, wow, water the flowers and cut the weeds and don't ever get mixed up. And that has become kind of a mantra for me. And I would suggest that you adopt it in your own life. In your church, go home. Water the flowers. Water the good stuff. Cut the weeds and don't ever get mixed up. God bless you. It's been my joy to be with you. Let's go eat brisket. Let's all stand together.